Uh, we're here today, getting in, in right in the middle, kind of a series on the book of Jeremiah. We're actually in week five, and I don't know how many weeks. We may go one more week, we may go a couple more weeks, I'm not sure yet, uh, as we go through this. Uh, and we've been picking different stories um, from the book of Jeremiah to learn about the culture we live in. And if you know much about the story of Jeremiah, uh, it was a story about how he remained faithful even when the people around him didn't want to hear the message he had. It's a story about a culture that had turned its back on God. And in many ways, as we've shared, as we've gone through this series, it parallels the world, the society we live in today. Um, as our message becomes increasingly uh, kind of countercultural in a way that the culture just doesn't want to hear. Uh, you think about Jeremiah. His ministry was characterized by opposition, by suffering. Uh, it, it was a message of, uh, of really two things, of grace, if you would turn back to God, God cares, uh, He will provide a way uh, out and a, a way of, of escape, so to speak, uh, and a way of healing. But if you don't, there will be judgment. And so Jeremiah is really a book about judgment, a topic we don't like to hear much about today. And so uh, we, we look at that and and so Really, what we've been doing throughout this study is talking about culture a lot. And today, I want to really zero in on that and, and kind of focus on the culture we live in. And if we want to reach that culture, we've got to understand it. We've got to understand the changes that we've seen. How many of you would agree that in the last five to ten years, we've seen more cultural changes than we have in the previous 20 to 30, right? We see a rapid change and a uh, we see that taking place. And I want to try to help you understand why that is happening and what we can do to counteract that. Now, back in 2015, uh, late night talk show host Stephen Colbert, he did the commencement speech at Wake Forest University. So right down the road at a school that was founded as a Baptist school uh, in Winston-Salem. So he did the commencement speech, speech there. And this is what he said. I, I want you to, to listen to this and see if you hear anything kind of unusual or uh, controversial in what he said. He said, I want you to find the courage to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong, and then to make the world good according to your standards. Now, it's interesting, right? Because we hear that, and on the surface, it's, oh, that's good. You know, have courage, and uh, you, you, you can figure this out and make something of the world. But there's a problem with what he said. Did, did you catch it? Who gets to determine what is right and wrong, <laughs> right? Who, 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 let me just ask you, right, how has that gone in the past when people have individually decided what is right and wrong? Uh, not just from the Bible, but even in our country and even in world history, that never turns out the way we expect it to. And so if we want to make the world a better place according to our standards, I'm telling you that's a path that leads to trouble. And so uh, in an article I read, uh, somebody wrote this about that speech. He said, for Colbert, the way to avoid a feeling of failure is to create your own test and, and to then grade it yourself. Why worry about passing a test that someone else has created for you? Why feel bad for failing to meet some externally imposed standard? And so instead of lining up and saying, do what is right, it's do what is right for you at the time when you do it. That, that's really kind of the, that, that really encapsulates what's happening in our culture, in our society today. 
Uh, it really is. And so that kind of brings me to my first point, the first question I want to open up with, and it's simply this. What do we base our beliefs upon? What do we base our beliefs upon? Because if this is the way the culture is going, if you're hearing this message, well, find the courage to decide what is right and wrong and then make the world a better place according to your standards. What do we base that upon? That, that really is such an important question for us to wrestle with because if we base our beliefs on something that's not true, that's going to lead us down a path that is not helpful, that's not good, that is not holy. And so uh, when we think about that, our beliefs are those core uh, foundational aspects of what we know and, and believe at a deep level. That affects our values. That affects our convictions. That affects our, our actions. All of those things flow out of our core beliefs as a person. And, and so... Ultimately, we've got to know that our life is grounded upon something we can trust, something that we know that is right. Um, this, this whole idea of understanding what is right and wrong, it really is affecting our culture. And I really think it's kind of what's precipitating this rapid change that we're seeing. In a recent Barna study, uh, 62% of Americans polled they said they considered themselves deeply spiritual. So 62% of people, 6 out of 10, said, I am deeply spiritual. But then as you drill down, it's kind of, you find some interesting facts. These same people were then asked how this deep spirituality affected their decision making. Almost a third, so 31%, said, I make my moral choices based on what feels right and is comfortable. Interesting, right? Another 18% of this group said, I make my moral choices based on whatever is best for me. There's another 14% of Americans who said, I make moral choices based on whatever causes the least conflict with others. And so what you're seeing already, all of those answers, they may sound good on the surface, but they're not biblical answers. Only 16% reported, I make my moral choices based on what the Bible says, what God's Word says. This world, we need answers we can trust, and we're turning to the wrong place time after time. We're turning to the wrong places, we're turning to the wrong people uh, for the answers that we so desperately need. And so it may sound trite, but it's reality. What we need is the Bible. I believe the Bible has the truth we need that will help us find the peace that we desire. The Bible has the truth we need to help reconcile people, to help build bridges, to help, help us find the truth that we're longing for, to find the purpose that we need. And so we can share that truth, and we can do that in a way not out of condemnation, not out of hate, but out of love, even when it's unpopular. The gospel has the ability to shine light into the darkest problems that we face. And that's what we so desperately need. Now, through this whole series, I've thrown around a few terms and I haven't really, I have to admit, I didn't define my terms. And sometimes I think I need to back up and do that because I assume you guys may know a phrase I use and don't describe it. I've used the term postmodern a little bit. 
And I want to take some time to kind of describe that today before we jump into Jeremiah, because I think it's important that we understand postmodern. And, and some would say we've even gone past postmodernism now into a post-Christian era in our society, in our world today. Um, and so I read a book about 20 years ago. Um, it was called, uh, I think it was from Beyond Belief to Convictions, and used it a lot in youth ministry. And at the time I read it, it was talking all about this postmodernism. And, and 20 years ago, I'm thinking, well, that sounds interesting. And I can see how that's going to happen in our big cities, in our urban areas. But that's not going to happen here in the mountains. That, that was kind of my, my thinking, right? My thinking is we're isolated up here. When things happen in the big city, it takes years before they reach us. Um, and that's kind of how we've grown up over, you know, it's our, my wife and I, we started doing youth ministry uh, 25 years ago. So it, a lot's changed in that, that 25 years. Um, and I've seen a huge shift in the, the belief system. And a big part, I think what really rapidly accelerated that change and what blew up my assumptions was the Internet. Because now, instead of being isolated, we're interconnected with everybody uh, everywhere. Uh, kind of everybody's seeing and learning from the same social media, the same movies, TV, everything, all at the same time. And so we're seeing culture change faster because of how we're interconnected. And so this book from 20 years ago, it kind of described what postmodernism is. And I want to read these six kind of things that it uses to describe postmodernism. It says, while postmodernism is tough to pin down, here are the most common beliefs. One, that truth does not exist in any objective sense. So you, you can't really tell me what's true and what's not true. That's up for me to decide. Uh, the second thing, instead of, this, instead of discovering truth in a meta-narrative, in a bigger story, uh, such as the Bible or even an ideology, uh, that provides a unified way of looking at philosophy, religion, and art and science. What postmodernism does, it rejects any overarching explanation of what constitutes truth and reality. So, in other words, you it, you can't simplify things and say this, and say you know, and to use any system, any anything like that to describe culture. It says truth, whether in science, education, or religion, is created by a specific culture or community and is true only in and for that culture. Now, this is where it starts getting a little dangerous, right? Well, truth is only for that specific group or culture, and you can't tell anybody else what to believe or what's right or what's wrong. And I've heard this stated in so many ways, right, that, well, just because it's not it, just because it's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for me. Who am I to tell someone else how to live their life? That that's kind of where that extends to. Then it, this is the the fourth one. Individual persons are the product of their cultures. That is, we're essentially unique individuals. Uh, we are not essentially unique individuals created in the image of God. Our identities are defined by our culture. And so you see African-American, European, Eastern, Western, urban, rural. You see these labels attached. Uh, another, the fifth one is all thinking is a social construct. In other words, what you and I regard as truths are simply arbitrary beliefs that we have been conditioned to accept by our society, just as others have been conditioned to accept a completely different set of beliefs. In other words, it's like, would you just believe that because that's all you've been taught, because that's the culture you grew up in? That doesn't mean it's true for everyone. 
And then finally, any system or statement that claims to be objectively true or unfavorably judges the values, beliefs, lifestyles, and truth claims of another culture is just a power play, an effort by one culture to dominate another culture. And so much of what we see taking place in our world today flows out of those six statements without us even realizing it. And, and what's a little bit scary is if you go generation by generation, you see generations have very different viewpoints when it comes to, to postmodernism. Older generations, baby boomers and above, typically have grown up in a modern worldview. Gen Xers like me, we're right in the middle, so we don't know what to believe. And then you've got millennials and Gen Zers that are coming up, and uh, they're really strongly in this postmodern. That's, what, that's all they've known because that's all they've grown up in. And if you're a teacher, you've seen this. You've seen this shift take place in our young people. Uh, and it explains some of the politics. It explains, explains some of the ideologies you see. But that's what's happening in our culture. We've come to a point, point where it used to be uh, Christian values were kind of the accepted viewpoint. Now there's just simply what we believe, but we can't tell anybody else what we believe. Because if we are, we're just trying to shove our culture over theirs. That's kind of the place we found ourselves. And so why do I share all that? Well, I believe the Bible is true, first and foremost. I believe the Bible has the answers that we need, and I believe we have an obligation to share it. So we have this challenge. We're in this challenge right now because we have what we fully believe, what we are convinced that the world needs so desperately and the world is saying, but we don't want to hear it. Same as what happened in Jeremiah's time. Uh, Paul, uh, when he was speaking to a, a young pastor, Timothy, he reminded him of the fact that the Bible is important, that Scripture is important. And in, in 2 Timothy, this is what he said. He said, all Scripture is inspired by, by God. All Scripture, not just the, the red letters, not just Jesus' words. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. This is what the world struggles with. We don't want to be told what is wrong. Well, I get to decide that for myself. That's what the world says. But God says, no, wait a minute. I, here is what's true, here is what's right, here is what's wrong. And then we struggle with it because we don't want to hear it. So we're in this book of Jeremiah, and, and I kind of just want to open up with this, uh, this, this whole idea of this culture that we're, we're facing. And, and here's the first point I want to make, and it's simply this. Culture calls us to compromise, but God calls us to stand up for what is right. Culture is going to constantly try to get us to say, but did God really say that? Can we really trust God's plan or God's word? Or we really don't know what was originally written, so just throw it out and just do whatever feels good. Do whatever you want to. Uh, but God is con consistently calling us to back to do what is right based on the truth in His word. And so... Our love for God is what leads us to know what is right from wrong because it's clear in His Word and the Holy Spirit never contradicts His Word. So let's kind of, we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 38 today. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. We'll be putting it on the screen as well. Um, Jeremiah chapter 38. Now, I mentioned this, I think, earlier. Um, if I didn't, 
I, I forget sometimes what I say in different services, but uh, Jeremiah is not always in chronological order. And so what we see in Jeremiah, it's, it's a collection of stories about the prophet that were recorded, uh, some by, his, by his, uh, his kind of a secretary here and putting these together. So now we have in 36, 37, 38, we have a, a collection of stories here that kind of help us learn more about Jeremiah and who he is. And so this is almost like an anecdote in the middle of Jeremiah, helping us to see some of the opposition that he faced. And so Jeremiah, he's still prophesying that the city's going to be destroyed, that all those who stay in the city will be doomed. But his message is still not popular. They still don't want to hear it. Uh, So nothing has changed with Jeremiah. He just keeps preaching this message. He just keeps going against culture and saying, everybody's going this way. God wants you to go this way. It's a countercultural message. Um, And so... uh, Nothing's changed with Jeremiah, but the people, they're starting to change because they're getting tired of what he's saying and they don't want to hear it anymore. And so uh, what we see in this passage is we see the people finally reach their breaking point with his message. Let's pick it up. Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 1. Uh, And this passage is why I'm very thankful that we can listen to the Bible online and learn how to say some of these words. Can I just be real? Um, I'm still going to butcher them because I'm from southwest Virginia, but... Um, yeah, they're, they're um, not your common biblical names here. Now, Shepatai, the son of Maton, the Gedaliah, son of Pashir, and Jehuchiel, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah had been telling the people. He had been saying, this is what the Lord says. Everyone who stays in Jerusalem will die from war, famine, or disease, but those who surrender to the Babylonians will live. Their reward will be life. They will live. And the Lord also says the city of Jerusalem will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. And so Jeremiah, uh, he keeps telling the people, this is what the Lord says. If you stay here, it's not going to end well. War, famine, disease. I mean, it's, it's happening, right? But if you surrender, your only hope is to surrender, to give yourselves up to the Babylonians. Now, you can imagine this is not a popular message. They don't want to hear this. Jeremiah is a prophet of grace because he's given them hope. He's saying this is the only way you're going to survive. But he's also a prophet of judgment. He's not afraid to tell them God's judgment is coming. Um, And they've got to listen. And I feel like, I just want to be real with you. I feel like sometimes in the church today, this is a message that gets lost that there's judgment, that there are consequences for sin, that there uh, are, you know, when we turn from God, we can't expect His blessing over our life. And and so Jeremiah's message was simply, judgment is coming unless you turn back to God. It's a message we need today. Uh, It's a message, and I know we like talking about God's love and God's presence and power in our lives and how He changes us and and all those good things, and those are great things to talk about. But we simply cannot ignore the fact that when we turn our backs on God, there are consequences. There's judgment, right? And, and so to understand that is to understand this is, we, we live in a culture today that doesn't want to hear that same message. They don't want to hear that there's sin that we need to deal with. They don't want to hear that the things that I desire to do are wrong. Why? Because if I desire to do them, that that, that means I can do them. 
And so if we admit that there is a God, that means we have to admit there are consequences for the way we live our life. I think so many people are pushing back against the whole idea of there is a God because they, they understand once they acknowledge there is a God, they have to change how they live their life. That's really the world we live in. And so I may surprise you a little bit this morning. Because I will tell you, with all the changes we see, I'm not panicking about what our government does or doesn't do. Um, I, I don't really I look at our government, um, and I really believe the primary responsibility uh, for proclaiming the gospel message is the church. And I believe the church is, the, is, is the, the body that has to stand up for what is right. I don't believe that we can legislate morality. I don't think that we're going to change it from politics. I think it's going to be changed from a revival that takes place within the church. That's what we need, is believers to start living like Jesus is the king of their life. And so, uh, you know, we look and you say, well, okay, well, Jeremiah, he had this message from God. It was unmistakable. God told him what to prophesy. Well, what are we supposed to talk about? Well, it's kind of interesting. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we, learn, we, we see here, this is the message we have. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So in the Old Testament, we see this. God used prophets to share the message. So the, the prophet would say, share, and we saw that here. This is what God says. Thus saith the Lord, right? The, the prophets would proclaim the message from God. But now, in these final days, God has spoken to us through His Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. In prior times, He spoke through the prophets. Now, we have Jesus. And now, when we open up the Word, what John 1 tells us, right, is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. When we open up the Word of God, what we see are the words of God. It's, it's, it's God speaking to us. So the message we proclaim, we have in Scripture. We don't have to wait around and say, well, I'll tell people something, God, if you tell me. No, God speaks to us all the time through His Word. And that's the message that we have. Now, here's the problem. And my next point, standing with God, it's not always popular. When we stand up, on what the Bible says, and we say, well, this is what the Bible says, people are going to say, you know what, I don't care what the Bible says. They're going to say, well, the Bible may say that, but this is what I believe. They're going to say, well, you may claim this, but that, that was written by Paul, not by Jesus. Or that was, that was written to a culture that, that doesn't apply to our culture today. All sorts of uh, kind of interpretive gymnastics that people make to, to take what's in the Bible and throw it out. But and, and the, it just comes back to standing with God is not always popular. Look, let's look, continue in Jeremiah chapter 38. You see what happens when Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Verse 4, these officials went to the king and said, Sir, this man must die. That kind of talk will undermine the morale of the few fighting men we have left as well as that of the people. This man is a traitor. So here, as we get to dig down, we get to see why the people didn't like Jeremiah's message. I love this, right? They get, you get down to it, and the real reason they don't like Jeremiah is that he hurts their feelings. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, this is going to make us feel bad about ourselves. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves. And, and so he's got to die. We, can, we don't want to hear what he has to say. That's the message 
that, I mean, that's what's happening here. That, that's really what, what's going on. We live in a day and time where people get offended at everything. Would you agree with me? Here's, I actually read an article this week talking about how many churches have taken their past sermons off their website. They're no longer archiving their sermons because they're afraid somebody's going to clip out you know, segments from them and use them against the church. They're afraid that their words are going to be twisted or people are going to edit them or they're going to something that was taken out of context from five years ago or ten years ago. Uh, I listened to another speaker this week on a podcast. She was talking about messages from like 20 years ago in different cultures and different countries could now be used. I mean, things, what we say, our words can be weaponized against us now. And we see this. It's What's the term we have for it now? It's cancel culture, right? We see that a little bit. And we see what happens. And, and, and I would say, you know, uh, here, here's, here's actually, I looked up, what is cancel? I looked up a definition of cancel culture. It's interesting. It's, you know, you see it today. Cancel culture is the modern social attitude that any controversial speech or behavior must be punished through public shaming, silencing, boycotting, firing, bankrupting, deplatforming, etc. The result is that the offender's influence, their presence, reputation is canceled out. And so I would say, right, there are times when abuse has happened, when violence has happened, when assault, rape, racism, there are big events that have been covered up. People need to speak out. That's not, that's not cancel culture when you're, you're bringing sin to light, right? That's not what cancel culture is. But when you hear something that hurts your feelings and you don't like, you don't have the right then to go and say, they hurt my feelings. They, they no longer get to, get to tell anybody what they believe. It goes for Christians as well. All right. We have to understand, right, people have a right uh, to say what they believe even if we don't agree with it. And, and so what happened here for Jeremiah, he was, he was canceled, Right. He was a victim of cancel culture in, in, in that day and time. Why? They didn't like what he had to say. He hurt their feelings. So they're like, okay, we don't want to listen to him anymore. You've got to shut him up. And so do something about it. Um, and I would say this, right? Here's the irony of all this cancel culture we live in and all the tolerance that we see. The irony is that the more tolerant a culture becomes, the more intolerant they are with anybody that disagrees with them. Right? The more intolerant they become of anybody that has a dissenting opinion. And so Jeremiah, he wants what's best for the people. He's got this message from God. He's not changing what he's going to say. And we see that it has some effects. And here's how I would, you know, and I would just say, all right, all this kind of brings up these really tough questions that we have to wrestle with as Christians. And it's like, how do we, how do we reach into a culture that doesn't want to hear this message we have? How do we bring up our kids to engage in a world without them being corrupted by the world they live in? How do we, um, you know, how do we respond when people say you're being unloving because this, this is what, you, because you, you believe the Bible? Or you're being intolerant because you believe the Bible? Or if we stand for truth, we start worrying, well, what will people think of me? Will I lose my influence? Will I lose my reputation? Uh, will I lose my popularity? Right? Those are real questions that we're struggling with and that we've got to learn. We can, we can trust God and we can do this in a way 
that the world sees Jesus through us. I think that's why in John 13 we have this really simple statement. How's the world going to know who we belong to? Your, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so I, I think the mistake we make sometimes is we become so pushy in what we believe that we become unloving in how we share it. Jesus was the perfect combination of truth and grace. Perfect combination of truth and grace. He spoke truth, but he did it in a grace-filled way. That's what this world needs. Not to compromise what we believe, not to worry about the consequences of what will happen when we say what we believe, but to be loving in how we say it, but to be faithful and to continue to say it. That's what this world needs. And the, what, what happens, it kind of brings me to my next point, we start wanting to please people. And so we silence ourselves. Pleasing people is not our goal. That's not our goal. It's not why we exist. We don't exist to make everybody happy around us. That's what happened uh, with, king, with the king here as they came to him. Let, let's kind of keep going. Verse 5, King Zedekiah agreed with all these people. All right, he said, do as you like. I can't stop you. This reminds me of, of Pilate with, with Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to wash my hands of this. I don't want nothing to do with this. King Zedekiah is like, okay, guys, you're going to do what you're going to do. I can't stop you. Go ahead. You, you, I know you don't like this guy. Whatever it is, do it. So the officials took Jeremiah from a cell. They lowered him by ropes into an empty cistern, which is what they used to collect rainwater, in the prison yard. It belonged to, to Malkajah, a member of the royal family. There was no water in the cistern, but there was a thick layer of mud at the bottom, and Jeremiah sank down into it. So we see what happens to Jeremiah because he did not care about pleasing people. <laughs> That's not his goal. That wasn't his goal. It shouldn't be our goal. But there will be consequences sometimes when we do what God calls us to do. They take Jeremiah, they throw him down into a well. This well is dried up. It's a muddy place. And I've got to think this kind of, this is a little bit referring back. In Jeremiah chapter 2, I don't know if, if you read this, but it's a really interesting uh, part in Jeremiah chapter 2. I don't think I preached on this, this passage, but it said... Um, Verse 12 and 13, I'll go back and read it. It said, The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back at horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. And so earlier in Jeremiah, we have this picture where God is saying, okay, the people have cut themselves off from their true source of water and they're searching for water in places that will not even hold it. <laughs> And so it's kind of ironic now that they throw Jeremiah into this cistern that doesn't even hold water. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the king, he was just trying to keep everybody happy. That's, that's, that was his goal. Let me keep everybody happy. What, what happens when we do that? All right. Uh, Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. As soon as we turn the corner and we say, my goal is to keep everyone around me happy, you can, you're automatically saying, I don't care what God thinks, and I'm not, I'm not his servant anymore. All right. First Thessalonians, Paul said it this way. On the contrary, we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God and not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Uh, and so uh, this, this, we, you know, this good news, the gospel, we speak as messengers and proved by God to be entrusted with this good news. And so 
that's kind of where we find ourselves now. Jeremiah's been, thro- he, he does what God asked him to do. He ends up in a pit. Uh, if I had to title this morning's message, it's like lessons from the pit. What can we learn when we find ourselves in that pit? What can we learn? We can learn that when we follow God, it's going to take us places that sometimes we're not comfortable. Uh, it's, it's going to mean that sometimes we lose our position of power, influence, reputation, popularity, because we stay faithful to God. Doesn't always turn out like a Hallmark movie, right? That's what I mean. The Bible's it, it, it tells us, right, that we will face suffering, we will face persecution. People aren't going to like what we have to say sometimes, but we keep doing it in a loving way because we care about others. We care about our relationship with God. What's interesting here in this story, though, is that just as it seems like all hope is lost, this is the end of the story for Jeremiah. We see one person that is willing to listen to God and do something about it. And and I'm so thankful that we see these glimpses throughout Scripture, that God can take one person who is wholly devoted, who listens to Him, to change the course of history. And that's what happens in this story. Verse 7 in in chapter 38. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, an important court official, he heard that Jeremiah was in a cistern. At that time, the king was holding court at the Benjamin Gate. So Ebed-Melech rushed from the palace to speak with him. My lord, the king, he said, these men have done a very evil thing and put in Jeremiah, the prophet, into a cistern. He will soon die of hunger, for almost all the bread in the city is gone. So the king told Ebed-Melech, take 30 of my men with you and pull them out. And so here what we see, he goes and takes the time to find uh, clothes and ropes and blankets and all this stuff. So Jeremiah's not hurt, and he tells them, loop him around. They pull him out of the, the cistern, and, and they rescue him. And Jeremiah then gets to go and have, uh, have a, a discussion with the king. Why? Because one person cared enough to do something about the problem, about the evil that they saw. And so my question for you this morning Are you that type of person who just joins in with the crowd to condemn everyone else? Are you the type of person to say, no, that's not right. I'm going to do something about it, and I'm not going to stand for this. What's interesting to me is the the man that did something here was not even an Israelite. His own people turned against him. It took an Ethiopian, a foreigner, someone who really was not part of the chosen people, right? It took a Gentile to come and say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do, this is not right what you did to Jeremiah. And so he went to the king. He risked his own life. And you appeared before the king. The king could have killed him. And he, instead, the king's like, you know, he was the king's conscience. That's what he was. He went to the king. And the king said, you're right. That wasn't right. And so take 30 of my men and go and rescue him. And, and, and so I just want to, to, to share Right, what we see is that we've got to learn how to be faithful. We've got to learn how to listen for God and do something about it. My final point this morning is this. If we want to be faithful, surrender is the only option. What's interesting is you keep going in this story uh, in, in verse 17 through 20. I won't read it, uh, but Jeremiah gets to speak with the king. And, and what Jeremiah tells him, he said, if you surrender to Babylon, then you and your family will live, the, the city will not be burned down. But if you don't surrender, Jerusalem is gone. 
It's going to be completely burned down. It's going to be handed over to the, uh, to the Babylonians. They're going to burn it to the ground. Your only hope is to surrender. It's your only hope. And so Jeremiah is telling the king, your only hope is to surrender. I think God's telling us today our only hope to, to, to this world we live in today is to surrender to the king. Surrender to God. And so my question for you today, are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to say, God, I'm tired of trying to do things my way. I'm trying, tired of trying to, to go with culture and flow down this river of culture. And I want to take a stand. And I want to stand for what is right. I want to do what you've called me to do. I want to be who you've called me to be. I want to take a stand against evil. I want to take a stand for truth. So the question we face is how much are we willing to lose? Because if we surrender to God, we lose, we give up, we die. We die to ourselves. But if we don't surrender to Christ, we give up so much more. So what God is calling us to do is to surrender to Him. To trust Him. Even when we say, even when it doesn't make sense, right? There are times in this life we say, I know what your word says, God. I don't fully understand it, but faith tells us I'm going to live by it anyway. I'm going to trust you even when my vision is cloudy. Even when I don't fully understand, God, that, that's living by faith. And that's the kind of living God is calling us to do. So this morning, as, as uh, Luke and Abby come back up, I, I want to read you a definition of the gospel um, that I read this week. It said the gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from their sin in themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. It's the gospel. Romans tells us this, for I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And so my invitation to you this morning, are you ashamed? Are you willing to stand with God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word that we can open it up. We can dig in. You can speak truth into our life, even when it makes us uncomfortable. So my prayer this morning is that everyone who has heard this message online, in person, first service, second service, a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, if you are listening to this, my prayer is that God would take what you've learned and press it upon your heart in such a way where you realize your need for God. If you're not a believer, you would realize that the only way that you can be made right with God is through acknowledging your sin, acknowledging your need for a Savior, acknowledging who Jesus really is. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our hearts that God, you raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. So that's our prayer, that people would cry out to God and understand how they can be saved and born again. If, if you're here today, if you're listening today, and you are a believer, and you're struggling because culture is pulling you uh, and, and tempting you to compromise what you believe, my prayer was, would be that you could find your strength on the solid rock, the, the Word of God that, that, that teaches us what is wrong, right and wrong, that corrects us when we're wrong, that that just leads us down the path of righteousness. 
Lord, I pray that we will be more influenced by your word and less influenced by the culture we live in. That we would be able to speak truth. We would be able to speak love. That we would be able to, to reach out and care about those who are hurting so that we can share the love of Christ, the gospel message with them. Heavenly Father, as a church, just keep using us and guiding us and helping us uh, to, to be compassionate, uh, to, to not compromise, uh, to be your servants. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.